You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. Imagine getting your first business advice when you were nine years old, driving around with your dad, who was a pimp, and he was collecting money from the prostitutes who worked for him. That's the beginning of the story of Javon McCormick. He had 23 siblings, he didn't go to college, and he rose up to be an extremely successful entrepreneur in America. He's the CEO of Scribe Media, a great publishing company, and he's the author of the book that just came out, Modern Leader, as well as an earlier book, I Got There. His story is incredible, it's inspirational, and it's just harrowing. It's the first podcast I've done in person in years but I wanted to do this, so I flew out to Austin, Texas, where Javon is, and we sat down and recorded this interview. Javon, last time you were on the podcast, your book had just come out, I got there, and you told this intense story, but it was years ago, I'm sure people don't remember, but you started off your new book, Modern Leader, basically this huge leadership lesson you learn from your dad. Like we all, we all learn basic things from our dad. Like I learned how to shave from my dad and whatever, but your dad was a pimp and he was taking you out on his run, picking up money from, you know, the prostitutes. And maybe that was such a great story to start your book with, but like, tell it, can you tell that story? Yeah. Uh, so, so, all right. I was nine years old, and in the 70s, the, the car of choice for a black man was a Cadillac. And my dad had a custom candy apple red Eldorado for Reds Cadillac. Candy apple red on the outside, candy apple red leather seats, and this really thick candy apple red carpet. So I was nine years old, and he, he picks me up on these rare occasions that he actually picked me up, and we go to collect money from prostitutes. And we pull up to the first prostitute, and it, I, I just remember it was cold outside, Dayton, Ohio, and, and, and I could still smell the, the, the heater from the car. And the, the first prostitute, he cracks the window, and she hands through what seems like just this massive amount of money, thick stack of cash. And she asked my dad, she goes, hey, I made my count. Can I come in? And my dad, in the, in the most loving way, no, girl, get back out there. You're on a roll. Keep it going. I'm going to come back around and, and pick you up in a little bit. And, and he ends with, when I come back around, you can pick where we go to dinner. Like, like that was a bonus or, or, or something. So we, he rolls up the window. We drive off. And we go to the next prostitute. And she slides through what seemed like $3. And my dad loses it and uses every derogatory foul word that you can think of to describe a woman, talk about a woman, and, and it 
grown men would have cried with some of these words. How did she respond with this? Oh, she crying? immediately started crying. And and so my, my dad yells. And for, for the sake of the, the conversation, he goes, bitch, get back out there, get my money. And, and he ends with, don't be common. And what's interesting about that last piece, don't be common. We would always hear him say that. But as a kid, we didn't totally know what that meant. What he was saying was, when you get back out on the corner, don't walk the corner in a common fashion. When you get in the bed, don't be common in the bedroom. When you dress, don't, don't dress common like everyone else. You know, be different. Don't be common. Well, that lesson stuck with me to, to this day. Don't be common. But what really stuck is rolls up the window, we drive off. And this was my first view into entrepreneurship. Immediately, I thought to myself, okay, wait a minute. What if I was nicer to the prostitutes? They got to keep part of the money. I could have more prostitutes in volume. And then I could make more money because more of the prostitutes would want to work with me because I'm nicer, they get to keep part of the money. And I'm nine years old, I'm thinking, okay, how do I scale this? How do I grow this? And, but then, then I took it next level and I thought to myself, like, oh, competition. A lot of pimps are gonna be mad because I'm gonna take their women and so I'm gonna have a lot of pimps angry with me and that's gonna cause a problem. And that was my first view. Did, did you ask your dad like, no, do you think it'd be better if you'd be nicer? No, didn't do, I wouldn't dare going to touch that one. Now, I, I will say this. That not only was that my first view into entrepreneurship, that was also my first view into one of the number one leadership principle for me, which is put people first. I was literally thinking, how could I treat them better? And But so I'm curious then, like, I'd give a read um, Pimp by Iceberg Slim. Yes. So in that book, he seems like your dad a little bit mm -hmm. in the sense that he was pretty vicious. Yeah. Like he would, he would off and on, like he would, he would be nice, but then he would like beat them up and, and it was horrible to them. And he seemed to describe it. Like if you always keep them on the, on in a state of fear about you a little bit, that that was more effective. Like, did you, do you think your dad had that you know, view? Or? It, 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 it's interesting. <laughs> That that is a pimp playbook, if you will. I don't feel that they ever stepped out of the pimp playbook. Mm -hmm. That that was the playbook that worked for pimps was keep a woman in quote unquote in her place, keep her in check, don't allow her to think, keep her in fear. That was the playbook. I don't believe any of them ever tried to say, "Hey, I wonder if this could work a little bit different if we did it this way." Well, well, like I think. When he was just starting out, Iceberg Slim was a little bit nicer, and he maybe felt that sometimes they would take advantage of that. So he, so some, I forget the details. I read the book a long time ago, but I feel like he felt it was necessary, or else they would end up taking advantage of him. Well, so so then then you get into really the definition of what let, let's describe take advantage. So so you know, uh, they're doing something they don't like doing is the problem. Well, right. Well, well, a pimp itself, like if if you dare talk back. That seems as a negative. So, you know, we need to get into the, okay, what's keep a prostitute uh, or a hoe in, in line. And so I believe force was just the way to 
go about keeping uh, keeping order as a pimp, if you will. Um, but what I found, what James, this is interesting. What I would, as I grew up, what I really found interesting about this is, if you say, like my dad was a pimp, people view that as, oh my God, his dad was disgusting. He put women on a corner. They sold their bodies, and he took he took every dollar. And you know what? What a disgusting life. But if you look up the definition of pimp, the definition is a man who exploits a woman for profit or gain. If that's the definition, the greatest pimp of all time was Hugh Hefner. Oh, yeah, of course. But we don't view Hugh Hefner as a pimp. But what did he do? He exploited women for financial gain. They, the, the, the play. Playmate of the month, playmate of the year. They made very little money, very little. You have to made a ton of cash. So I, I just, I find it interesting that when you look at the definition as a whole, the word pimp, when people think of my dad, they think disgusting. Hugh Hefner, yeah, there were some people who thought maybe Hugh Hefner was disgusting too, but for the most part, Hugh Hefner was celebrated and he was a pimp also. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, the advice of don't be common, because that's, you know, I imagine like for your dad, it's not like he was in this legal business entity that he could just sort of rise up through the ranks. He had to basically, eat, you know, you only could eat what you kill. You have to like go out there and, and it's hard to do an illegal business, let alone, you know, it's hard to do a real business, let alone an illegal business. And the advice of be common seems to apply to every aspect of life. Like, you know, when, when you took over as CEO of Scribe Media, like the common thing to do would just be keep churning out books as usual, but you've done everything and that. So how does someone, if someone's grown up in the system, how does someone think of ways to not be common? How can I not be common? Or someone listening to this. Well, you know, you know, right off the bat, you're not common. Unfortunately, <laughs> for better or for worse. <laughs> I think my, my wife would sometimes wish I was more common. Yeah, you, you're definitely not, not common. Um, you know, here, here's the thing, and, and it goes into to a little bit what we've talked about earlier uh, about the playbook. The playbook is really okay. How do you fit in in this playbook and be common? That's what the playbook is. So, is, describe what the playbook is. So the playbook for corporate America, for the business world, and, and, and even really for many areas of life itself in our, our society is how do you fit this playbook in order to advance or succeed in the business world? So much of the, the, the playbook is, is this. Do you have a college degree? Right. Th think about the number of companies right off the bat. If you submit a resume and you don't have a, a college degree, boom, you're excluded. They, they don't even see your name. They just say it, it, it's built to where no college degree, boom. So the, the, the playbook is exclusionary, but it's built for a common set of people that can succeed within the playbook. Here's the best way I can say it. Right now, you've got a lot of companies out there that will openly admit, yeah, we got a diversity problem in our company. And that's a good thing. At least they're acknowledging, at least they're, they're coming out and, and, and acknowledging that they, they have an issue. But here's where the insanity starts to take place. They'll say, yes, we have a diversity problem. But in the next breath, they'll say, we only hire culture fits. Well, let's think about that for a second. If you know you have a diversity problem, but you're saying you only, have, you only hire culture fits, do you not see the vicious 
circle that you've created that you're hiring the same people that you've created the diversity problem with. Rather than hire culture fits, why don't you hire culture ads, people who are going to add to the culture? So for us here at Scribe, we don't use the word culture fit. We're looking for culture ads because culture fits, that's how you end up in the, in the broken playbook. What do you think about companies that are starting a policy of only looking at, not, not interviewing people in person, so you don't, and you don't see their names on the resumes because you could often identify background from the names. What do you think about these companies that just look at the resume, but don't look at the names, don't look at pictures, don't talk to them, and then they pick based on that? I, I actually believe that's a great thing, and I'll even use our, our company for an example. So we got called out on this. We used to have this practice where we would ask you three questions, and you had to submit a video of yourself answering each question. You have one minute to submit it. Well, then we started getting feedback that some people felt that they were excluded based on their appearance in the video. We had not considered that. And so we had to say, okay, you know what? The video was optional. You can su submit audio or you can submit the video. And, and did you look back and see, was there any bias based on the videos? You know, none that we could track, but but uh, again, a lot of times, that's why the word is, is is what it is, unconscious bias. Could it have been there? Maybe so. What were the three questions? I'm just curious. Oh, they they, they just depend on any oh. given time. Like one here uh, for us here in Austin, we would ask the question, how would you solve the traffic problem? Uh. Uh, and, and so because we, we want to see how do you think, what, what, what's going through your mind, what, what, what solutions would you come up with? Yeah. So we ask questions like that to, to see how people respond, and, and you only have one minute to respond. So how do companies solve this problem? Because like, like there's so many filters, and the filters are not necessarily bad. Thing. Like, for instance, do they have a college degree or not? This is a very common filter. And it seems like a bad thing because college, I've spoken about on this podcast many times, is often worthless, but it's a good shortcut for people to say, oh, at least A, they did something like me because I went to college. So I want, you know, people who I know went through four years of education and the discipline and the learning and the work ethic to get a degree. So it's like a shortcut to thinking. But it is, but, th but think about this, James, e even with that, I, I, I appreciate it, but here is the broken playbook to that model. If, you, and, and I'll use my kids, uh, so, so no, one, no one gets offended when I, I say So I have four children. Let's just say the day comes, my, my children, they decide to go to college, okay? Their college is already paid for, so they'll go to school uh, and, and, you know, get up, go to class, go to the library, study, come home to their apartment or whatever, and, and there you go. They'll graduate, no, no student debt. So my son's got his degree now. What did he prove? Dad paid for his college and he got up and he went to class and he went to the library and studied. He didn't have to worry about bills. He didn't have to worry about the rent. The only difference between my son going to college and my son being at home in high school is mommy wasn't there to wake you up. A college degree that your parents paid 100% for tells me nothing about you. It tells me you went to class. Woohoo! Or maybe you survive without going to class. Exactly. Exactly. Because even then, so not everybody puts their GPA on there. So if you skate it out of there with a 2.0, again, what's that tell me? Even that is very exclusionary because I'm going to be eliminated just because I don't have a college degree. So let's look at this as, as part of the playbook. 
let's sit back as business owners, business leaders, corporate America, and ask ourselves, does every role really require a degree or can we teach, coach, and mentor people into these roles? Well, you know, something like 40% of college graduates are underemployed. They're doing jobs that don't require, maybe 40% is a bit high, but they're doing jobs that they didn't study for. Or, you know, something like, I think I read 115,000 janitors have college degrees, 15,000 parking attendants have college degrees. So a lot of people get the degree and then get jobs that don't even require a degree. So the degree is, and I don't want to make this all about the degree, but it's sort of, to your point, a poor shortcut. Right. But, but unfortunately, it is exclusionary because a lot of who doesn't have a college degree, it's a lot of people who couldn't afford college. Totally. Now, now, so here's where it actually would get impressive. Show me the person who's got a college degree that maybe it took them six years to get the degree uh, because they were still working 40 hours a week in order to. Okay, now that tells me a little something. There's commitment right there. That shows something. Again, using my own son. If you go to school, son, for four years and you get a degree that dad paid for, <laughs> so right. It means it means nothing. It means you went to school. Big deal. So so you didn't get a degree and you've been CEO of companies. You're Ernst and Young just listed you as entrepreneur of the year. So and I know you've been asked this a lot, but okay, well, I'll describe the story in the book where I think you kind of got in where other people were being excluded. You were working in the mailroom at one of your first jobs, and there was another person there, Mary, uh, who was also, let's say, was she, was she black? Was she? She's Latino. She's Mexican. Yep. She's Mexican. And you were deterred because, and then we start, we're talking about this right before the podcast, actually. You were talking how a lot of cultures and communities are cohesive. They help each other out. But you specifically wanted to do twice as much as her. So if they only could pick one person of minority background, it was going to be you and she would be fired. Yes. And so you were, you were cutthroat <clears throat> instead of cohesive. It, it, you know what, James? It, it, I, everything that I've gone through in life, I don't have many regrets. I, I have two regrets. One, how I treated women when I was in relationships. I was a monster. Couldn't, couldn't hold a relationship to save my life. I, I was so much li like my dad. But I don't blame anybody. That was my fault. I needed to teach myself and learn how to hold a relationship. So that's, that's one regret. My second regret is how I treated Mary. Those are my only two regrets in life. Because I look back at it now, and, and I don't back away from, yes, I'm ultra competitive. I want to win. But I remember she stopped me one day and she said, hey, can you slow down? And I said, slow down? Like, what, what's that even mean? And, and she said, look, I've got a daughter. You know, this is, this is my, my job. This is the way we, we eat. I got to take care of my daughters. This is my health care. And I remember just thinking to myself, I don't care. It's either you or me. And I'm not losing. And what it actually did, I went harder. And we, she, like, sparked a whole nother level in me that I didn't know I had. I'm like, oh, now I'm really going to put you under the table. And, and what ended up happening? Because you didn't describe the, the outcome. Well, it, what, what, what ended up happening, here's, here's the, re, the regret that I have. I, I, I was 20, 21 years old. I could have done more to help her instead of try to put her under the table. Yeah, she ended up being like, a, because the, I became the measurement. 
they figured, okay, well, if he can do that, everyone should be able to do that. And she ended up being let go. And then that's, that's truly still one. I, I have that regret still because I look at it now and I can't say it enough. I could have helped her in her role versus working her out of her role. And that, that's a, a big regret of mine. You mentioned you wonder what is happening to her now, or you wish you could find her. Is there any way to find find her now? Like, what oh, was the company? I, I, I don't even. It was it was uh, Nationwide Insurance. I don't I don't even remember her her last name. Or I wonder if like HR would just know a Mary who was working yeah, in the mailroom when you were there. That would, that would Did be, you have the same boss? Yeah, yeah. It, it it would be interesting. I know she was quite a bit older than me. I was like twenty twenty one, and she was in her mid thirties. Uh-huh. Uh, so. But yeah, that would that would be very interesting because oh man, I I just I could have helped. I could have shown her ways to improve her efficiency, ways to be more effective, how to do it a little bit faster. But any little tip trick thing that I I figured out, no, I I was I was hoarding it, keeping it to myself. I was utilizing it, and it, it it's. Uh, unfortunately, it was a little bit of what, what I grew up, you know, people talk about uh, crabs in a barrel. You know, one person tries to rise and other people try to try to pull you back down. Um, I wasn't going to let anybody pull me back down. I mean, how did you even decide you were going to go into, let's call it normal business, like working in a mailroom for an insurance company when, you know, here you are getting these kind of lessons from your dad who's a pimp, and he, I don't know if you ever saw him deal with violence or anything oh, like yeah. that, but like, whoa, what were, I mean, I always wonder this, you know, it's this nature or nurture idea. Like you have 23 siblings that you know of. Yeah. How many of them are CEOs of companies right now? None. Like, uh, like where are, where are some of them? Wow. Uh, some are dead. Some have been in prison for, you know, 12 plus years. Some, some have had you know what 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 people will call maybe stable, successful lives. There, there are a couple of um, you know we we all have our own definition of success. So I always hesitate to say you know oh, when people ask me the question, well, why were none of your siblings as successful as you? Well, that that's you you can't say that because we all have our different definition of success. If you want to live in a tiny house out in the middle of nowhere and make thirty grand a year, and that's your definition, then hey, you. You've achieved success. But what do you think separated you out, though? Um, Whether it's success or not, what made you different? I would say belief in myself. And, and, and I, would, I would actually be lying if I said, my, my uncle actually said this to me. I was 15 years old. He took me to the airport. I, I was about to be reunited with my mom. I, I was separated from my mom from, uh, at nine years old. And I was supposed to be living with my dad. And I was about to be reunited with my mom at age 15. And when my uncle took me to the airport, he said to me, he goes, look, getting out of Dayton is going to be the greatest thing that ever happened to you. And I'd be lying if I say that, that there, there's a lot of truth that, that came into that. Why, why was your dad given um, parental oh, man. rights? So, so James, my mom was facing uh, prison time for welfare fraud. And she was about to go to prison. And my dad, at the time, when I was nine, he had taken the pimp game from Dayton, Ohio, and he had moved to Houston, Texas. So my mom put me on a Greyhound bus 
nine years old, Greyhound, from Dayton, Ohio to Houston, Texas. I rode a Greyhound bus at nine. So I go and, I, and I'm living with my dad and we're living in an hourly rate motel with my dad, his prostitute, and my six-month-old half-sister. Um, and that's how I ended up with, with, with my dad. There was a whole lot of shit that went down in between there. But um, uh, my well, long story short, my mother ended up not going to prison, which is actually kind of funny how she ended up not going to prison. The prosecuting attorney that was going to send her to prison, he liked two things. Prostitutes and drugs. Oh my gosh! Guess where he used to get them from? Oh my! My gosh. dad. It's so so. My dad. So dad made a few calls. My dad said, "Hey, you send her to prison because my dad didn't want to take care of another kid." My dad said, "You send her to prison, I'll go public." And so he said, "Hey, then she's got to leave the state." And so my mom ended up moving to Texas. She moved to Houston. So I'm in Houston. My mom moves there, but I'm still living with my dad. Still in chaos. It is all kinds of hell going on. We're in Houston about three years, two, three years. And my dad just one day up and says, you know what? I'm taking the pimp game back to Dayton, Ohio. And we up and move. What was mind blowing though, at this point, I'm like 11, 12 years old. He doesn't tell my mom. So my dad, the prostitute, me, and now I got three half brothers and sisters. We all go back to Dayton. No one tells my mom I'm leaving. So we go back to Dayton. My mom doesn't know if I'm in LA, Miami, Chicago. She has no clue where I am. We get back to Dayton and James, no bullshit. Two weeks after we get back to Dayton, my dad says that he's going to go to England and he leaves. It's like February, Dayton, Ohio leaves. And I remember the very next day, that was a Saturday. He left Sunday afternoon the prostitute says that she's going to go get a pack of cigarettes. She leaves at two o'clock in the afternoon and doesn't come back. Sunday night turns into Monday to Tuesday to Wednesday. Now I'm like, oh, wow, we don't have any more food. So I had to tell my, my four-year-old half-sister to babysit the three-year-old and the two-year-old so I can go down to the store and steal food. I go down to the store, I steal food. I'm nervous as hell. One, I don't want to get caught. Not because I don't want to, to get in trouble, because I'm thinking, oh my God, if I get caught, who's going to know they're there? So I'm stressed out of my mind. I steal some food. I come back. I walk in the door. The minute I walk in the door, there's my two-year-old little brother, butt naked, running around. I'm like, oh, we don't have any diapers. Okay, I can't steal diapers. I, 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 the box is too big. I can't do this. So I take my little brother. I sit him on the toilet. He's crying, I'm crying. I look at him and I say to him, I'm all right, all right, my man. Until something comes out, this is how it's going down. And, and that's how I, I told him to body train. So fast forward through all that, she was gone for three weeks. Oh my gosh. She left us there for three What did you do for the whole, did you steal food Steal food. J James, I, I will say this, I'm 50 years old now. I was 12 at the time. To this day, I've never faced a greater stress than that, those three weeks, nothing. When, when I went broke, nope. Um, making payroll, income statements, balance sheets, uh, and stock investments, there has never been a greater stress. And, and the, the biggest reason why, James, because I knew what it was like to not have electricity or water. So every hour I stressed, are they gonna disconnect the electricity? Are they gonna turn off the water? 
and no one came looking for us. It's Dayton, Ohio. It's February. I'm supposed to be in school. Greatest stressful three weeks I've I've ever faced. And let me ask you, was there any, I mean, and maybe this is naive of me to ask, was, was there any neighbors you could go to and say, help me or? No, I, I mean, w where we were, would someone maybe helped us? Possibly, but but everyone was poor. Everyone was struggling. Everyone was just trying to get by. But more importantly, what I was nervous about is if somebody found out we were there without a parent, what would happen to us? Mm. So I didn't say anything. And and so the, the prostitute shows up one day after three weeks. She was, she was a horrific heroin addict. So she was gone on a, on a bender somewhere. She shows up. My half-brothers and sisters, it's their mom. She, they're, they're excited to see her. But I went up to her and I said, where the F have you been? James, she beat the hell out of me. You and I are old enough to remember this. Think, think like Rodney King beating is, is the beating I took from her. She stomped on me, kicked me, my ear was bleeding. And I, I jumped up, I ran away. And I went to one of my uncle's house and I asked if I could live with him and he said no. And he brought me back to the house and the second beating was worse than the first. And he couldn't say to her, I'm bringing him here, but don't beat him. James, he, he didn't even go in. He pulled up and I got out of the car. Gosh. And, and so here, here's what's interesting. By the grace of God, um, the next day, one of my other uncles picks me up, one of my dad's other brothers, and he takes me out to another one of my dad's girlfriend's houses. And it was, it was on a Sunday. So I get there and, and, and I'm being dropped off with my little suitcase. I don't know this lady. I don't know where I am. I'm just getting dropped off. But she says, hey, are you hungry? And she takes me to, to she said, where, where would you like to go? We go to McDonald's. And then she took me to buy some clothes. And then the next day she took me to school and she gave me some lunch money. So I'm like, okay, this is great. This is, this is working out really well. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. I'm like, oh, we got some consistency going. Friday night comes around. Oh, shit. She's an alcoholic. And I'm looking a little too much like my dad right now. Mm. She starts to beat me. James, at this point, man, I'm tired of getting beat. I fight back. So here's a little black kid, white lady. She calls the police. Who do you think's going to jail? And so they come, they take me to juvenile prison, and they put me in solitary confinement. Now, here is the just moment of, oh, wow. I'm in solitary confinement. It's pitch black. They turn the lights off on you. You've got nothing but a mat, little steel toilet sink, pitch black, and it hits me. No one knows I'm here. My dad's in England. My mother's in, in Texas. My mother doesn't even know where I am. No one knows where my dad is. No one knows I'm here. Man, you, you talk about having conversations with yourself of mentally building your, your, your character, your strength, your uh, 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 emotional wherewithal, because all you have in that moment is yourself. But at that moment, are you aware that you're building these things? For no, no, you're, 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 you're not aware of it, but you're talking to yourself and, and you're saying, stay strong. You say, okay, all right, all right, you'll, you'll get through this. You'll get through this. And, and that's kind of the, the emotional strength that just that, that constant talking to yourself is trying to get you through. How long were you down there? Uh, I, I was only in there for like two, three weeks, but it was a long two, three weeks. 
uh, I was in juvenile itself that, that one time for about three months, and I was in and out of juvenile three different times. My, my favorite part of being in juvenile, and I know that sounds weird, in, in, in juvenile prison, and it is prison. Let's be very clear. It's not juvie. It's not juvenile detention. That shit's juvenile prison for kids. Um, many people don't know this. So I'm going to put it out there. No, I did not vote for Trump, so let's put that out there. But the one thing I do appreciate that Trump did, Trump actually signed the bill to do away with uh, solitary confinement for kids. That's how long that had been in place. I can't even imagine. So it was just all day long. It was dark. Dark, 23 hours. When you got to eat, they turned the lights on. I don't know what that's like. Like, I can't even imagine. Hell. Like, how do, you, how do you survive just even 22 hours? Um, it, it, here's the thing. What, what's, what's interesting about this is, is people will then look at kids and they want to call these kids animals or even grown-ass men that come out of prison. They want to call them animals. When you're treated like one, you end up acting like one. And so that's what it was. You were... Dude, nobody to talk to. No, no interaction, nothing. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I remember last year I was asked to go speak at the Norway Business Summit, and I was so excited because side-by-side side with the Business Summit was the Norway Chess Summit, where I would get to see in person Magnus Carlsen, the best chess player ever, playing chess. But it was four plane rides, like to get to the city that ultimately I would go to. So I really did not want to fly for 14 hours. And they, they were willing to pay for everything for me. So I, I, at first class. So I didn't want to fly for 14 hours and not be first class. So I had to hurry up and get on the phone immediately to get those first class tickets to a chess tournament in Norway. And listen, this is just like when, you know, you have to know when you want the best of anything, you have to act quickly or someone else will get it instead. And I did not want those seats to fill up. So it's like if you're hiring for your business, you want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. I just was talking to a friend this morning where he was trying to decide between some programmers and he waited a little too long and both the programmers he was interviewing took other jobs, like great jobs. So 
you know, what's the best way then to hire the best as quickly as possible? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates fast. And right now you could try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Just try it and see. You'll, you'll find out. So ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology takes center stage to identify the top talent for your roles. Immediately after you post your job, ZipRecruiter's smart technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I know this because one time I signed up as an employee, potential employee on ZipRecruiter, and I got nonstop Really, I was, even though obviously I wasn't looking for a job, I love what I do, but I just wanted to see what would happen because they were a, a, a sponsor of my podcast and the most interesting jobs would pop up in my emails like, hey, you're qualified for this or that. And so it's interesting to see. So just just go there and try it. Try ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Amp up your hiring performance. Now this is more for if you're hiring, but amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. So you describe the stresses you went through and plus then the solitary confinement, the beatings, the, you must've not trusted anybody. You go to an uncle, they can't, you can't, oh, I still don't. Uh, how, what, what, how do you overcome that? Like you don't, I mean, there's a lot, there's obviously there's pros and cons, right? You learn how to deal with stresses. You can later on say, Hey, I've been through that. So I can go through anything. But the flip side is most people don't, come out of those experiences with a positive outlook on life. Like when you're a very positive person, like how, again, is this a nature or a nurture thing where there's, was there someone else who came along and gave you life lessons that you cherished or? So that's, no, I, I appreciate that question. There's a, there's a couple pieces to that. I, I remember as a kid before my mom and I were separated, we, we were poor. We grew up on welfare. You know, welfare would run out the end of the month. I, I remember pulling uh, uneaten lunches from the trash can. You know, maybe the kid didn't finish the whole burger. I'd pull food out of the trash can to, to eat. Um, so we, we, we were poor. But what I remember my mom as a kid, she would always say to me, there are people far worse off than us. And I was, I was saying this seriously, but a bit of a smart ass as well. And I would respond to her and I would say, yeah, but there's people far better off than us as well. And I'm going to focus on them. And, and, but I meant that because I was like, well, not everybody lives like this. But to your point, where was a good shift for me? The third time. Like, like, like and, and sorry to interrupt, but like, where did you see a path where, oh, there's a path I can take where there's light at the end of this tunnel. Like you mentioned in the book, everybody, people thought the only paths were they're like a rapper or an athlete or whatever. But uh, you obviously took a different path and saw a different path to even get on it. So my, my dad, when, when I was in Houston, when we lived there, and, and he never said a word. I don't even know that he, to, he's passed now. I don't know that he ever knew he did this. 
My dad, when I was 10 years old, we're in Houston. He drove me through uh, an ultra uh, exclusive neighborhood, uh, River Oaks, and it was one of the most exclusive neighborhoods in, in the country. And he drove me through this neighborhood. And I remember seeing at 10 years old for the first time, 10, 15, $25 million homes. And what blew me away was these homes were huge. These homes were bigger than the housing projects I, I lived in. And only one family lived there. And I remember driving by and, and saying to myself, okay, I'm going to have one of those. One day, I didn't know how, but I knew I was going to have one. So right there, James, what did that do for me? That did for me what doesn't happen to so many kids in this world. I got to see possibility. I got to see what was possible. So many kids grow up in the, in the inner city, in poverty. They see nothing but, but just hell, you know, drug abuse, pimps, uh, poverty, hunger, and, and, and you know, broken homes. And that's all they see. How, how are they supposed to know that they can become a forest ranger? And, and, but at the same time, you can see those houses, but then you see people who are different from you walking in and out of those houses. How do you picture yourself being one of the people walking in and out of those houses? Well, I mean, that, that's, that's step two. Step one was I wanted to get one. I wasn't worried about who, who lived there and, and, and what the race was. And, 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 I, and, and I believe a lot of that too for me, James, uh, here, here is the, the ultimate benefit of being mixed race. My dad uh, was black, my mom was white, is I had already been battling by the age of 10 being, you know, hearing my mom be called nigger lover, me being called Oreo cookie, half breed, zebra. I had dealt with what it was like to, to have an identity issue and, and not be welcomed by black people because I was half white, white people because I was half black. So the race issue wasn't even something that I was worried about at the time because I just knew that was a fact of life for me. I saw a big house. That was the goal. But it was possibility that, that made that happen to, to your, your original question. Second to that, when I got out of juvenile the last time, two very important things happened. One, when I'm leaving for the third time, this huge black corrections officer comes up to me and he gets down on one knee and he says, hey, boy, you come back here again, you're going to man prison. James, I'm 50 years old, man. I don't know what it is about the term man prison, man. I don't want anything to do with man prison. I don't want to know what goes on there. And, and I remember thinking to myself, I'm like, hold on, there's something worse than this shit? Like, I'm, I'm good. Tap out. I'm, game's over. And I never went back to, to juvenile. That was the first piece. Second piece, I got to go live with the uncle who originally took me back to the house and he agreed to take me in. He had four of his own kids. So he agreed to take me in with her mouth to feed. But, my, but that uncle was one of the more uh, stable of the family. He worked at General Motors. Uh, he had his four kids. He, he was uh, big into religion. Uh, so this is my first introduction to God. Bible study on Tuesday, Bible study on Thursday, uh, church for two hours on Sunday, and it was consistent. But Uncle Bobby also taught me structure, routine, uh, impeccable attention to detail, follow through, keeping your word. He taught me all those things. I only lived with him for 14 months, 
but that was some of the, the best 14 months I had ever had because as a, as a 14, 15 year old boy, I was receiving structure I'd never had before. And were you getting positive reinforcement? Like, were you feeling good about yourself because he was saying, hey, good job, or? No, I did get, a, the, the, the only piece that I would say was positive reinforcement, it wasn't necessarily positive, but it showed me the power of follow through. And, and so when I first went to live, I'll, I'll share where it came from. When I first went to live with my uncle, I came home with my first report card. It was all D's and F's. And he said, go upstairs, take your clothes off, leave your underwear on. What? So I go upstairs and I just get a, a whipping like no other. Mm -hmm. And so then afterwards, he's sitting down and he looks at me. I'm crying. And he goes, son, what do you want? And I go, what, what do you mean? I'm crying I'm like, Uncle Bobby, I don't know. You. Son, what do you want? Uncle Bobby, I'm getting frustrated. I don't know what you mean. He goes, son, what do you want? And, and he finally realizes I don't, like, I didn't know what the question meant. No one had ever asked me what I wanted. And so what he was trying to figure out is what could he do for me that would assist me in trying to get myself together? He right. Said, it's like you needed, you needed a reason to do anything. You needed yes. a reason to live. Yes. Which many people have. Like many people say, oh, I'm going to grow up and go to college and be a lawyer or a doctor or whatever, because they see those possibilities. Right. No one had ever had an expectation of me. You know, his kids were expected to excel in school. His kids were expected to be mannerly. No one had ever had an expectation of me. So when he asked me that, he goes, what would you like me to get you? He said, tell, tell me something you want. I go, anything? He said, yeah. I said, it, it was 84, 85. Michael Jordan just hit the league. And I go, I'd like a pair of the new Air Jordans. They were like $100 at the time. He said, I tell you what, son. And even this, this is telling. He goes, okay, son, look, I don't expect you to get all A's and B's right off the bat. Not an expectation of me. He goes, but if you get all C's, I'll get you those new Air Jordans. Six weeks went by, get my report card. I mean, James, I remember seeing his report card. James, I had all C's and one B. For me, it was the second coming. <laughs> and so I get home. I'm waiting for him to get home. He pulls up, Uncle Bobby, look at that. And he goes, good job, son. And he goes, well, I tell you what, hold on a second. I need to run up to the store. You want to go with me? I was like, oh, yeah. So he doesn't say a word about the Jordans. So we get in the car. We go up to the mall. And we're walking by. And, and, and Foot Locker's right there. And we walk by. And I'm like, and we just keep walking. But I don't say anything. I'm not going to ask. So we go do whatever he needed. We come back. And he says, hey, is that the place? Yes, sir. Um, oh, James, I'm going to try not to tear up on you, man. Um, he says, okay, let's go. And we go in. He says, okay, tell the man what you want. Told him what I wanted. Told him what size it was. Oh, James, I slept with those shoes on, man. I slept with those Jordans on. That was the first time someone had actually followed through. I, I remember being a kid so many times, my dad saying he was going to come pick me up. No show. Uh, my, my dad saying he was going to do something. Didn't happen. My mom wanting to do something, but just not having the money to do it. Didn't happen. Uncle Bobby got me those Jordans. And from that point forward, everything. If I say I'm going to do something for you, oh, I'm doing it. So, so it was positive feedback, and it was the, the importance of follow-through. You saw the yes. effect it could have on people. Yep. And so that's going to help in every 
area of life, every area. And, and, and you think about this, James, it's so simple, but one of the biggest things we're missing is society, society right now. Just do what you say you're going to do. That, that's a do what you say you're going to do. That was the lesson. And I'm just curious, what happened to the two-year-old brother you potty trained? Uh, actually, you know, the, 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 the beauty for him, uh, he ended up getting, so, so let me give you the, 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 what happened to all three because it really sucked. So I got out of Dayton, and it wasn't until I went back to my dad's funeral about four years ago that I found out that my, those three siblings that I, I was with, they actually ended up getting split up and put into foster care. But before they got split up, they were living in an abandoned home. They would put their groceries in, in the snow to try to keep them fresh. But the worst thing you could do to three kids that that's all they have as a unit is to break them up. And they split them up into foster care. So when I went back, they shared some of the stories. But my, my little brother, the two-year-old, he ended up getting married at like 19. Greatest thing ever having. He's still with his wife to this day. Uh, she came from a structured home background. Greatest thing ever happened to him was he married her. Wow. And so, and so he's married, two kids. They have a house. Wow. Um, yeah, they're, they're awesome. So, okay. So, so next thing is, how did you kind of make the leap to, like you say, all these companies looking from the top down now, all these companies in the book, you say they, they all pay lip service to, yeah, we want to be diverse, but no one's applying. Or no one, there's no, there's no pool of people to look for. How did you make the leap to get the attention of some company where now you have a chance? And the reason I'm asking is not just for your story, but like, how does anyone do it, really? Like, how does anybody, how could anybody from your background do it? Was there, were you lucky? Was there a method? And I know you don't like the word luck. <laughs> I'm glad you said that, James. I'm like, oh, James, I read James, the book. I read I've always been willing to do what others aren't is, is what I would say a big piece of it is. Um, you know, even when I was the file boy, if they offered overtime, I was taking it all. What, what, how, how much, can, how many hours can I work? Can I, you know, I, I usually would work by hours were like seven to three thirty, But if they let me work till six thirty seven, I was in. Could I come in on a Saturday? I was in. I was always willing to do what other people were. You'll hear people now, I'm not working 50 hours a week. Okay, great, I will. And so while many people are pissed off, angry, what they won't do, who's holding them back, uh, blaming people, someone else's fault, I just look for an avenue to succeed. Why do you think people uh, have that sense of entitlement? I mean, and it's kind of almost a cliche to say, oh, yeah. this generation, everyone feels entitled, but People do say that. Like, they do say, oh, I'm not going to work over 50 hours. They, they don't seem to real connect that if you, if you do a little bit more than everyone else, you're going to succeed more than everyone else. Well, and, and what's crazy about it is you just think of the bar a little bit more because we live in a society now. And, and again, I'm not bashing anyone. But think about this, James. Right now, one of the hottest phrases out there is work-life balance. But watch this. Ask anyone, your next podcast guests, people you know, call them up and ask this question. Hey, when I say work-life balance to you, what's the first thing you think of? Here's what's going to come out of everyone's mouth. Oh, don't work 60, 70 hours a week. Oh, the four-day work week. Don't check your emails first thing in the morning. It's going to be all work-focused. 
no one's going to say, yeah, you know what? Maybe I shouldn't go to the bar Thursday through Sunday and then wake up Monday morning pissed off because I don't like where I am in my life. Uh, you know what? I need to lose 30 pounds. Maybe I should stay my ass out of the drive through you know, you know what? Wow. Maybe I shouldn't binge watch Game of Thrones Friday through Sunday and, and not leave the house, order Uber Eats, but then wake up Monday that I don't like my career. Think about this. When's the last time you, it's a disgusting word. So many people will say, oh, we binge watched XYZ show, uh, you know, Tiger, what, whatever on Netflix. We, we binge watched Game of Thrones. When's the last time you've ever heard someone say this? Whoo, James, man, we binge studied our 401k all weekend. We didn't leave the house. We were on the kitchen table. We had our reports, everything's right. No one says that. No one. You say work-life balance, everyone attacks work. No one says anything about the personal part of accountability of what you should do. If you hate your job so much, what are you doing to change it? If you've got to say, thank God it's Friday, because you're trading two for five, quit, leave, don't, don't work there. But no, oh, thank God it's Friday. Really? You're trading two for five? Why? No, no one takes any accountability. Everybody wants to blame someone else. Hate my job. Oh, my job sucks. The, the person, my boss is this. The, what about you? What are you doing to change? Change your circumstances. Do it different. And so, so again, this is like almost an unusual attitude for you to have realized on your own at particularly given what you what you went through actually it isn't jake you want to you want to go right back to where it is sure don't be common yeah don't be common that advice actually and the fact that you remembered it by the way so like there's only a handful of things people remember from when they're nine years old and that stayed imprinted on you what he said i don't even think that quote was in your book by the way that don't no. be common. so so that really stuck with you and i think it's really Great advice. And everybody, of course, can take it in a different way about what common means to them. But okay, so you 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 rose up, you, you had a variety of jobs, you you uh, were CEO, now you're CEO of, of Scribe Media, and now you know the pandemic happens, BLM happens, you you know, everybody's yelling from all the different angles about diversity. What are you what are you seeing now? Like oh, oh actually let me ask you a specific question. So you have an example in your book. And I forget if the example name was Ashley or Shaniqua, because you had two different. Yeah. Uh, you had a bunch of different. Your book, by the way, is very well written. It's all stories interlaced. Like a lot of times people just lecture with the book and you have like all these great stories in the book. And, and I always love story driven books, no matter what. But you have this one example where uh, it's just a case study, really, where, where someone, let's call her Shaniqua, is, is, can't get the job that all the college graduates are getting. She didn't get a college degree, but she she pins together some, she studies accounting. She's able to help some local people with their taxes or their accounting. And she makes small living, so she's able to support her family. But now she wants to go out and get a quote unquote real job and still nobody treats her well, even though she's got all these skills where she can learn something, she can create a business for herself. She can you know learn to do accounting as good as anyone else and still people won't give her a chance. And the one question I had when I read that, you're, you're addressing the question of why can't she get a chance? My question is, why does she want a chance? Like, why doesn't she just continue building her business? Why does everybody, why, why do you assume in the book people should want to work at like Procter & Gamble or some BS job or whatever? She sounds like she's building a good business and she's still young. 
Uh, unfortunately, uh, so many people also view the corporate playbook of what is, what success is defined by in, in this country. You, you, you heard me say earlier, only you can define what success is. The problem is so many of us have allowed either society, social media, family, spouses, partners to define success for us versus us defining what that is for ourselves. So what happens is a lot of people see corporate America, the business world, as a way out that, oh, if I can get in there, I can get a good paying job, I can have health care, I can have benefits, maybe a 401k. So they see that as the quote unquote American dream or success. So that's what many people are chasing. And the bigger issue with it as well is if you come from an arena where you don't have much, but you see that most of the people that are middle class, upper middle class in our country, that is the playbook they ran. That is, that is how they achieved that success, if, if you will then that's what you start to chase because you feel like, well, I, I want that as well. You may not even want the job. You may not even want the, the company where the job is, but you want the success of what you see comes with it. And this brings up uh, an important point that runs throughout the whole book, and I, I almost wish I had mentioned it earlier, but that's this idea of there's this playbook that, again, you know, middle class, uh, college degree, worked your way up at a company, then a co another company, then another company, and now you're one of the you're 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 in the you're in the set that can get these jobs. And that playbook's clearly, as you point out, that clearly playbook is clearly out the window. I mean, 55 million people were laid off during COVID. There is no real safe playbook for either managers or employees. And and I and I agree with you. Like I feel like. And you point this out very well in the book that if if in order to be a good leader or even a good employee, you have to follow a playbook, then you're not really leading. You're just following. Right. So so how does one succeed with now without the playbook? How do you actually get out of the playbook in order to succeed even more? Uh, one again, I'll always start with self. What's my definition of success? How how do you define success? What is your definition? So, so for me, a lot of what my life is right now was the definition. It was, it was financial security. Given my background, I don't hide from it. I'm very happy I live in a gated community. I'm very happy my kids go to private Christian school. I went to crappy schools. I mean, think about this, James. I went to schools that were so bad that you weren't even allowed to take your books home at night because they feared the books would not come back the next day. And now I'm a book publisher. <laughs> so, so. Um, my success, I have a wonderful wife, four healthy children. I have a, a beautiful home. It's, I have achieved my definition of success. Now, there's a lot more achieving I want to do, but that's one of the big reasons why that first book was titled, was called I Got There, because I got there, what, what I was after. And, but what happens is people will look at my success and say, I want that. Now, if you truly do, great. Then go achieve your success. But everybody has to sit back and say, okay, 
what's my definition of success? I'll give you a great example. One of our tribe members here, we, we call ourselves a, a, a tribe. She's getting ready to go uh, work remote, and she literally is getting a tiny house outside of Seattle, and her vision is to have this little wood stove uh, with the uh, smoke coming out of the top of the tiny house, a bookshelf for a wall, and out in the middle of nowhere, that's her definition. Beautiful. Go achieve your success. Again, so many people are chasing something that they see on Instagram, something somebody else has or what, what they were told they were supposed to go do. Go back to when we were younger. How many times were people told, go to college, get a good job, get married, have a family, get a, get, work right. There was a common attention. There was a common path. Like, yeah, go to college. Then it was usually go to grad school, like be a lawyer or a doctor. Yep. Then, or get an MBA. Get then either work on Wall Street or be a lawyer or a doctor or, or whatever, or you work for a big company and rise up to be a high level executive. Then you get married, you buy a house in the suburbs, there's a white picket fence, you work at the same place for 30 years, you retire with a pension and a good 401k, and that's that was the playbook. And you had to play along all along the way to all get to way. each level. Like, like you had to get good grades to get to the law school, you had to get good grades there to get to the good law firm, you had to, you know. Pay attention to everything your boss has said so you don't upset them and do whatever they said and believe in whatever they believe and you rise up. So that strikes me as what the playbook is. And as you're, you're a CEO, you hire people, other, you know, thousands of other people are CEOs who hire people. How do they get the playbook that worked for them so well out of their mind so that they can recognize the talents of other paths? One, it's going to be hard for many because you, you don't know what you don't know. Now, here's, here's the flip side of this. You, you heard me talk about my dad showed me possibility. So I didn't even know those houses existed. You and I talked about this earlier before the podcast. If you grow up in the inner city, you grow up around, well, we'll use the south side of Chicago. You, you know, they've nicknamed it Chirac. If you grow you know, poverty, crime, violence, if that's what you see on a day-to-day -day basis, and that's all you see, how do you even know that you can be a forest ranger? Like, like you, you ask a kid that, hey, would you like to be a forest ranger? They're literally going to look at you like, what the hell is that? Oh, that's where you get to work outside in nature all, all day. What? Yeah, trees and the wind blowing through your hair. It's beautiful. What? Like, how do you even know this exists? So, so my, my, my point being is you don't know what you don't know. Well, guess what? If you grow up in the playbook of what we just talked about, middle class, upper middle class home, two parent home, you went to college, uh, and, and then you got the job, and, and then you worked up the, worked up the corporate ladder. You, even that's a broken phrase. Uh, you know, climb climb up the ladder uh, because what that tells you is as you're climbing up, somebody is on the ladder, hmm. and so that in itself broken playbook. But then. This is all you know is this playbook. You're trying to recreate. James, here's the best way I can say this. So, so many people have asked, well, why, why? It's never one thing, but I'm always asked, why do you think you, you achieved the, the success the way you did? I was incredibly blessed to be raised the way I was. Pimps, prostitutes, poverty. And here's why. I didn't even know there was a middle class. So what that did for me is I came from this world of poverty 
At 10, I saw this world of $25 million homes. I didn't know there was a middle class. I didn't know there was a two-parent home. Somebody went to college. Mom makes my lunch. Didn't know that existed. So what I did was jump from poverty. I'm going right over here to wealth. And were you ever angry at the fact that some people had wealth and you didn't at that age? No, I, I was never angry. My my whole thought, rather than be angry, I always looked, okay, how can I do it? I always that is one thing I will say about myself that I I never was mad that you had it. What it meant for me though is if you did it, I can do it. E- even if there was very few crumbs out there that there are proof points of, well, look, everybody over there, 99% of them are are white. Well, yeah, but there's that one that's a black guy, black family. Okay, so it can be done. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. And so I always believed if somebody else did it, then then I can do it. Some of the people that I've studied the most, John D. Rockefeller, no degree. Andrew Carnegie, no degree. Milton Hershey, no degree. Henry Ford, no degree. So, so I was like, oh, I got a set of people here that don't have degrees who have achieved great things in life as far as business success. It can be done. And so one of the one of the values you talk about in the book that isn't really taught that well in schools is creativity. And this is like a key thing you look for when you're hiring, regardless of background. In fact, background, different backgrounds help with the creativity. But how does one necessarily how how does one practice creativity? How do you get creative? If if you've you know you grew up in such stress, maybe sometimes you have to be creative to survive, but sometimes that could suppress creativity because you're always trying to just survive. Well, a part of that is what I look for as well. So I'll, I'll give you an example. One of our directors here, I remember, what, what, so when I go into interview with, with people, I don't even look at the resume. So when I walk into the room, I mean, I'm doing two things. Everybody expects, because they, they prep everyone. I'm the last person uh, the, the candidates meet with. And they all know they're going to meet with the CEO at the end. So, of course, throughout your, your interview day, you're like, oh, still got to meet with the CEO, got to meet with the CEO. So then here comes the CEO. He's about to come in the room, which is a joke. I mean, it's three letters after my name. I'm saying I'm, I'm a person. But I walk in, and you're prepared. You're like, okay, all right. I got my I'm ready. I'm ready to answer all the questions. And then I sit down, and I look at you. And I say, okay, James, my man, what questions do you have for me? You were completely taken off guard because you were, pre- you were prepared to be peppered with questions. What I'm looking to see how are you going to handle yourself? What are you going to do? How are you going to respond? What questions do you have? I'm interviewing for character. I don't even look at resumes before I go in the room. I don't care where you went to school. I'm looking for character. Is this someone that we can teach, coach, and mentor into a role? Is this someone who's curious? Is this someone who has some creativity, has to work through some challenges? And I ask, hey, how much do you know about my background? Some of them their homework, some have it. So I'll share a little bit about my background. I said, now, James, with me saying all that, what's the biggest challenge you've overcome in life? And don't you dare tell me uh, the dissertation you had to write in college. And so now you've got to share a challenge with me. One of our directors here, she shared with me that her mom abandoned her in a motel and that she would have to walk across the street to uh, steal Taco Bell packets to eat. 
I knew before I left that room she was getting hired. And the reason being is afterwards I found out she had had a master's degree. She in, in, and I'm like, okay, she knew how to overcome adversity. That tells me a lot about that person's character. I had another lady that we interviewed and I asked her, I said, hey, how do you think you made it this far in our process? And she looked me square in the eye and told me, she goes, oh, because I went to Yale. I knew before I left the room, you're not getting hired. So because, so you went to Yale, big damn deal. That doesn't tell me anything. That was your, were your grandparents legacy Yale? Was your, your dad? you went to Yale. I, so that told me nothing about your character other than you were relying on Yale as your ticket to life. So I, I look for character and that's the piece that I feel more companies should be looking for versus a damn piece of paper that said, I got a liberal arts degree from Georgetown. Let's say, assuming we're not there yet, do you think there's progress? Do you think we're better than we were five years ago, 10 years ago? I, I do. I, I, do think, I, I do feel that. I do feel that we are better. I feel that we're better off than we were three years ago. And, and I will say I feel a little bit of progress was made uh, after the George Floyd murder. I feel that we did. We, we, we took a little, a little step forward as far as Oh, wow. He's being okay. aware. Yeah, being aware. Wait a minute, there's a, there's a whole group of people that we've kind of completely left out of this, this thing. Uh, so, yeah, I, I feel a, l- a little bit. You know, I'm not going to say we, you know, it hasn't been a revolution, but, but we, we've gotten a little bit better. And let me ask you this, and this is more from a macro perspective. Like, I feel in the 60s, when there was the civil rights movement and so much happened, there was real leadership in the form of Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, and so on. And they had their bench of leaders behind them. Why do you think during Black Lives Matter uh, and all the protests around George Floyd, I never really sensed cohesive leadership in that in that in those protests or in that movement? You know, I'll say this across the board, not just not just for the black community, uh, not not. But but I'm going to speak for our, our country as a whole. There's a horrific lack of leadership in our country all the way around. Like we're a leaderless country right now. Uh, I, I, I've said this, and many people didn't want to hear this. I, I, again, I did not vote for Trump. Let me let me make sure I have that very clear. But, but you of, wanted to. No, no. <laughs> but but one of the most racist things I, I I had ever heard, especially me. Again, let's go back to it. My dad was black, mom's white, so I'm mixed race. So I grew up not being welcomed by all white people because I was half black, not being welcomed by all black people because I was half white. When Biden made the comment, you ain't black if you don't vote for me, that was some of the most racist shit I had ever heard because now I got an old 80-year-old white guy telling me what race I am based on who I vote for, and I've already grown up being mixed race and having identity issues. You know, and of course I have a different perspective with my background, but that had a big impact on me. So I called Charlemagne the God, the one who was in that, the that interview. interview. Yeah. yeah. And we did a book together about that. It's on Audible, but we did, and we were going to call it, 
because Charlemagne said, you know, but I have questions. So I initially suggested to him, let's call it I have questions. And he changed it correctly, I think, to we got answers. But uh, uh, that was a very kind of impactful moment in the election. Oh, it's it, and so what, what, we're just leaderless. Think, think about this uh, again. I'm, I'm going to stay on the Biden thread for a moment. We all know this. Biden ran on two initiatives, the virus and immigration. Why has the media not called Biden out for the fact that he's not been down to the border since 2008? Like, like Biden, you control Air Force One. You can't say, hey, guys, we got to swing down by the border real quick. I can take a couple pictures. Like, it, make me feel that you're actually following through with it, even if you're not, clearly. But it, it's, it's mind-blowing. We are just a leaderless society. So when I look at even when Black Lives Matter was going on, I'll say this. A lot of people like to hear, but I damn well promise you a lot of people are going to agree when I say this. I'm so damn tired of these so-called fake lead black leaders that show up every time there's a race issue, every time someone's murdered and there's a possible race issue. They're always showing up for their TV appearance. Where are they when things are going good? When, when, when do I say that? We know which three I'm talking about. They always show up for the photo op. Always, you see them in the camera. They'll even lean into it sometimes to make sure they're in the, in the picture. And, and I'm so sick of the fake leadership who we're, we're a leaderless society. And, and I'll even say this, they're running a broken playbook. Let's show up, act like we care and get ours because they're not doing shit for the community. They're showing up because, hey, we'll, they'll continue to ask us to show up if every time we show up. And, and we'll somehow milk the system and get some money out of this. Ask ourselves, why are the same three people there every time there seems to be a race issue, a murder issue? They're, why? Why are you always here? Where are, where are you when, when we need you and, and, and our schools are falling apart? Where are you when, when we need uh, uh, additional funds coming into the communities? Why, why is it? that some of these same nonprofits have been in these communities for hundreds of years. And, and, and I'm gonna hit you with a fact on this one. We did uh, our guided author workshop here and we had a, uh, an executive director of a nonprofit in Chicago. And she said to me, she said, some of these nonprofits have been in these communities for 50, 60, 100 years. And she said, and they, they do some good things. But the question is, why has nothing changed? And, and she brought it up. She goes, nothing's changed because they need it to stay the same so their existence is, is necessary. Because if things change, there's no need for this nonprofit anymore. Well, although, I mean, it's almost like that's the narrative they tell themselves. If things get better because of them, chances are they would grow. But... Maybe they think they need status quo to keep raising well, money. Think about it like this. Uh, Chris, Chris Rock made a joke about it, but it's the, it, it's the truth. And, and he didn't need to make the joke that every drug dealer in America knew this before Chris Rock ever said it. There's no money in the cure. The money's in the comeback. And, and so if, if you cure something, you fix something, problem solved. There, there's, there's, no, there's no more money. So, so, so let me ask you, like, and we've, we talked about this before, um, but I'll ask it in a slightly different way. Why don't you 
take a role of leadership. You see what's happening on the corporate side, on the national side, on the individual side. You run a media company. You know, you publish books, you do a scribe media, does other things in media. Uh, how can you, and, and, and by the way, you are taking a leadership role. You write, wrote this book, Modern Leader, which is, which is certainly, you know, making a claim for, for leadership. But what else could you do? And, and, and by the way, the, the, the addendum to that is what can I do? Well, well so, so this, you know, Jason, we, we're, we're, uh, what, we're about 10 steps away from my desk over there. If we walked over there, uh, you, you'll see everything that I'm proud of is at, at my desk over there. Pictures of my family. Uh, that's my desk here in the office that we've scaled. And I'm very, very proud of what we've done here. But the third thing that I'm, I'm incredibly proud of are the certificates that have been given to me for uh, volunteering, uh, working my, my work with uh, high-risk youth that are transitioning from the juvenile prison back into society. So they, they go from the juvenile prison to the halfway house back into society. And, and Brother Smith, I, I, God rest his soul, he passed away. But I, I remember when I first signed up to, to volunteer, I was still at the software company. So, so you ask, what, what, what do I do? Um, I, I do my best to teach lessons and to give back for all that I've received. The, the, I have a deep responsibility, not obligation, to now teach, coach, and mentor people the things that I've learned to get me out of that, that circumstance. Because like you said earlier, for me, rapper, athlete, drug dealer were my options. No one told me I could be an entrepreneur and, and to turn around and, and be named entrepreneur of the year. Like I didn't even know that was an option. And then I get named entrepreneur of the year by, by global Ernst & Young. I, I literally thought it was spam when, when they first emailed me. But what if you didn't open that email? Like, oh, I deleted it the first time, James. Right. And then they emailed me again. And then someone else emailed me and said, hey, I nominated you. I didn't even know who the person was that nominated me. I literally deleted it the first time. I thought it was spam. Right. And, and so, but what, what do I do? Um, I, I show up at this halfway house. I asked Brother Smith. He was the, the, the director of the house. I said, what do these boys need? He said, jobs. And I asked, why don't they have them? He goes, if I knew that, you wouldn't be here. And I said, good point. So I go over to the boys, and they're all 15, 16, 17-year-old boys. And I said, okay, guys, look, we're going to role play. And they looked at me like, what? No clue. And I was like, oh, man. I, it was in that moment that I realized, damn, I've forgotten what it was like to be 15. So I had to take a step back and, and say, ooh, okay. I said, look, guys, here's what we're going to do. Let me explain something to you. And I, I say this incredibly humble. You, you know my background. We've talked about it. So this wasn't stated to be arrogant. It was stated to relate to these boys. I said, hey, guys, look, right now I showed up here in a $100,000 car. I said, I got to own a $2,000 suit, $50,000 watch, $1,000 shoes. And guess what? I'm not a rapper. I'm not an athlete. I'm not a drug dealer. The one little boy, oh, man, I'll never forget this kid. So the staff's over here, the boy goes, then what the fuck are you? <laughs> and, and so uh, the staff, hey, watch your language. And, and he goes, what are you? I go, I'm an entrepreneur. And, and they go, what is that? And then I knew, see, they don't know either. I said, okay, guys, here's what we're going to do. You all need to get your first jobs. Stand up. First, we're going to work on shaking hands. James, I said, okay, shake hands. 60% of the boys 
tried to pound me up with their fist. Didn't even know how to shake a hand. The ones that did, they gave you the limp shake, look down. And I'm like, man, come on, squeeze my hand, firm it up, look at me in the eye. I said, now we've learned how to shake hands. Now I want to hear you go into Burger King and ask for a job. One little black boy shows up. He says, y'all hiring? And I go, not you. And he goes, why not? I go, no one's hiring you asking like that. I go, here's how you're going to walk in. Excuse me, sir. Do you have any employment opportunities? And I go, you're probably going to be hired before you leave. And he goes, why? I go, because no one's coming in asking that way. James, four or five weeks went by. Every boy had a job except one kid, and it was only because he was 15. Why? Because these kids didn't know how to shake a hand. We worked on filling out applications. Think about it. These kids were under 18. You know what they were doing when they were going in filling out the applications? It says, have you been convicted of a felony? They were checking yes. I'm like, you're under 18. That's a sealed record. No, I go, man, if my, if my record was open, shit. <laughs> no job's going to be had. You don't have to put that. And, and so they stopped checking it. Taught them how, okay, here, fill this out. Put it this way. Here, rip it up. Like some of them, they fill out. I'm like, no, rip that up. Garbage. Like, what happened? I go, attention to detail. It needs to be neater. Write your name neater. And we went through. And I met James, one of the greatest things is when I would come every Tuesday and these kids would tell me they got more hours. They got a 10 cent raise. And they were so proud of themselves. They accomplished something. They saw what was possible. So like on a micro level, you really, you really, it's like a mistake on a macro level to say, hey, we need to get $14 trillion in reparations. I mean, that's one thing. Maybe it's good. Maybe it's bad. I don't know. But on a micro level, you want to change. Like you say, you want them to have more attention to detail. You want them to be more creative. You want them to have more integrity. You want them to, um, Burger King wants to hire people. Yes. It's not like, it's not like they're trying to reject people. They want to hire people. You kind of have to mess it up to not get hired is really the thing. And that, and that just doesn't apply just to Burger King. It applies to your company. That applies to every company. They, if they post a job, they want to fill it as fast as possible. And you only won't get it if you mess up in most cases. Yep. And, and now, now here's the flip side. This kind of goes back to what you were talking about earlier. Um, why so many people say, well, I ain't working Burger King. They don't pay enough. I'm not doing You got to start somewhere. My first job was cleaning toilets at a restaurant from the night before. The toilets were filthy. You have to start somewhere. Yes, no one wants to clean toilets forever. No one wants to work at Burger King forever. Maybe you do. That's not a bad thing. Many people don't know this. Here, again, we don't know what we don't know. When I was in mortgages, I remember I would do uh, home loans. I remember doing a home loan for a manager of a, uh, here in Texas, it's called Whataburger. And this person was making 100 grand a year, 96,000 they, they were making a year as a manager of Whataburger. And I remember asking them, like, yeah, I started, uh, I used to clean the, the lobby and that's how I started and I worked my way into a manager. Many people don't even know that's a possibility. Yeah. And so, so you have to start somewhere. You can have the attitude, I'm not doing that, but they don't pay me enough for that. I'll do it all. I'll do it all. If, if, if it is an opportunity that I can get in to succeed, I'm going to make the most uh, of the opportunity. The, real, real quick, the last piece of this too, you said, what, what else am I doing? I'm big on showing possibility. 
So I took those same boys, and I was at the software company at the time. And we had to go through this damn, it, it was like literally trying to get something passed through Congress right now with, with both sides. Or like it, it, it was, we got it to where the boys could take a field trip to my office, a software company. And I wanted them to see what a software office looked like. Double screens, whiteboards with code. You know, I just, I wanted them to get that environment. You know, we had this massive conference room with these drop down screens. I hooked up the PlayStation. They got to play Madden, you know, software in, in Austin. You know, we got the hotness of the, the, the break room with all the snacks and treats and everything. So uh, they got to raid the snacks, the, the, the sodas. We ordered pizza. But I remember it was the first time some of those boys had ever been on the elevator. Mm, wow. And I remember two of the boys. I said, so what was most memorable for you guys? They were like, man, the doors on the restroom? Oh, the doors on the restroom, the doors on the restroom. It's almost heartbreaking that they got to see nice doors on a restroom. One boy really hit me up on asking about code. And we had at the time this chief architect, his name was Jimmy. Jimmy was, was amazing, mind-blowing smart. Jimmy had written a book on coding. So I got Jimmy to autograph a book for him. I gave it to this kid. This kid read this book. So this kid, uh, I, I actually spoke at his, at his graduation. When he graduated from the halfway house, he, he got his little high school diploma. I spoke at his, his little high school graduation. He got into uh, junior college. Got his, got his little associates. Then got into a four-year. Got his computer science degree. Wow. Graduated. Got a job. This kid, I want to say now, is probably... 27, 28 years old, James. This kid now makes 150 grand a year. He's got over 50 grand in his 401k, and it came because he saw fucking possibility. I mean, that's that's, and that's the thing that's not really taught. You know, you learn about history and chemistry and English and whatever in school, but you're not really taught how to find no. possibility. No, who, where? Like I said, just think of how basic that is. The job's not even high paying. But if I grow up in the inner city, how do I get to know that I can be a forest ranger? Yeah. Like the, it's such a basic forest ranger. They don't make a lot of money, but how do I even know uh, uh, of this? And so when I say, you, you say, how do we change the playbook? So I spoke to a group of 250 CEOs and each person's company, I, I believe, was worth a minimum of $5 million. So significant CEO. Some were, you know, hundreds of millions. And I started off my talk this way. I said, how many people in the room can perform brain surgery? Any neurosurgeons in the room? No one raised their hand. I said, how many people in the room can build and launch a rocket? I go, any aerospace engineers, any rocket scientists? I said, or is it Elon Musk in, the, in here? No one raised their hand. I said, see, we don't know. We don't know. I said, now get this. Where I come from, there's just a lot of shit we don't know. No one's showing us. So when I say in the book, Modern Leader, open your eyes, open your doors, open a backpack. Open your eyes to this. Understand that just because I come from this community does not make me a bad person. It, it just means there's things that I don't know that the world has to offer. So open your eyes to what, are, what? why are we excluding these people? What, why have we built this system, this exclusionary system, 
in playbook, broken ass playbook that does not welcome everyone. So op open your eyes, open your doors. If you get a resume and at the top of the resume, it says Ravante Jenkins. I'm not even saying hire Ravante, but right now, Ravante can't even get an interview to try to get better in an interview. And if people want to think that this is a bullshit, that, that what I'm saying is untrue, let's go back now to when I was 21 years old, early in my career. My name is Javon McCormick. I didn't want to be in the mailroom forever. So I started applying for other roles at different places. Couldn't get a callback, Jane. This is early 90s, so this isn't, you know, put your email and then blast it out every, everywhere. Cold calling. Couldn't get a call back. I have one gentleman, nice white guy, picked up the phone. James, first thing he says is, uh, hey, man, I got a question. How did you get a black first name, Javon, and an Irish last name, McCormick? Well, James, you know this. I don't know where my last name comes from because my mom got it when she was in an orphanage. I was thrilled. I was like, oh, shit, my last name's Irish. This is sweet. Didn't, didn't know. And, and so I focused on that. But then when I hung up, I was like, oh, Javon. So my full name's Javon Thomas McCormick. That day, I said, that's it. I'm going by JT McCormick. James, the next week, calls, callbacks, appointments. I can't tell you how many times I walked into someone's office. They're like, oh, I didn't expect to see you. Like, well, what did you expect to see? And so from my early 20s up into the George Floyd murder, I went by JT McCormick. Yeah, I was going to say, last time we did a podcast, I called you JT. JT. Yep. And I think we even might have even talked about it. Like, I knew your name was Javon, and you just said, oh, I go by JT. Yep. But now, and I didn't know this again now in the reverse, I was calling you JT a few weeks ago. Then I read the book, and I realized, oh, I, he's Javon. Yeah. And you have a quote about it in the book, which is, if you, if you don't change, then you're choosing. You're choosing. And I, it, it, it was in that moment. George Floyd murder. And I remember just the just the disgusting virtue signaling we were doing as a country. Blackout Tuesday on social media. Like, what, what is that doing to, to help anyone? And you and I both know half the companies that were doing it were only doing it because they didn't want to get called out. Right. Then we were arguing over a syrup bottle. Mrs. Buttersworth has nothing to do with this. And then so we were arguing over a syrup bottle. But I read this piece. And at the time... It said that there were only three Fortune 500 black CEOs. And it caught my attention. I was like, huh, who are they? Roger Ferguson, Marvin Ellison, Kenneth Frazier. And as a bonus, the wealthiest black man in America is named Robert Smith. And I smiled. I go, well, those are four ethnic free names, if you will. And it hit me. I said, oh, man. I've edited myself to fit the playbook. I don't want anybody else to have to edit themselves to fit this broken ass playbook. And I'm like, you know what? I'm part of the problem because I was willing to edit myself to fit this playbook. You have been part of the problem for years. In that moment, I said, okay, I'm reclaiming my name. I'm going to go by Javon. And I was like, okay, you know what? I'm not a Fortune 500 CEO, but we've done a few things. We got some cultural boards, CEO, best, all, all that good stuff. 
But I, I didn't do it for me. I did it because every Rivante, Laquanda, every Martavius, Lucretia, every Rodrigo, Juan, Jesus that don't have playbook names, maybe one day when you hit the business world, you can work next to a Javon and not just a, a JT. And that was why I reclaimed my name. You know, and it, it's interesting. A lot of your story reminds me of, you know, David Goggin's story, who not only has he been on my podcast, but even more importantly, you published him. Yeah. <laughs> so, this book can't hurt me. A uh, great book, has sold billions of copies, is a gr- great guy. Uh, you know, you must learn so much from the authors that you deal with. Like, what's one thing you've, you know, just to kind of close this, what's one thing you've learned from David, who's been such an inspiration to people? Uh, very much so. You know, the cool thing about that too, uh, James, is since you brought up, you know, he also uh, wrote the foreword on Modern Yeah, Life. Yeah. So so it was, uh, what what have I learned? I don't know that I learned what, what he validated was discipline, consistency, belief, in, in, in hard work, willing to, to outdo, I mean, literally, is there somebody harder working than, than David Goggins? And, and so he validated all of those beliefs that, that I had. So I, I don't know that I, I learned anything, but I definitely validated the things that I believed were true. And to see what he's accomplished and what he's gone through. Uh, and we have some similar backgrounds. You know, he, he and I, uh, sit together periodically and, we we laugh, shed some tears at times about about our backgrounds, um, and yeah, I, I would say he definitely validated a lot of the beliefs. Yeah, and maybe learn is the wrong word because I find Facebook had a big impact on me, and I find it's it's almost more of a reminder. Like hard work is often something you don't want to do. Like he says in the book, he did not want to run. And, yeah, you know he's. he's he was originally known for being like this amazing ultra marathoner. He was popularized at first in the book Seal by by Jesse Itzler. He did, he did not want to run, but he knew he needed to do it for his own health, his own discipline, his own rewards and how he defined success. And that always had an impact on me. That sometimes it's very important to realize the things you need to do as opposed to want to do. You know, it, it, here's what I appreciate. Same thing. I, you know this. I, I get up every day, 3.45, 4 a.m. I don't want to get up every day at 3.45 to go to the gym, but but, but I, six days a week, I, I'm on it. I the, the one thing that David and I may differ on, David always talks about suffering. Maybe because I suffered so much as a kid, I, I just don't like the word, so I stray from it. I don't know that you have to suffer, but I do know you have to sacrifice. There is zero sacrifice. There is zero success without sacrifice. If you don't sacrifice, you will not see success. And think about this at the highest level. Go with Bill Clinton, George Bush, Barack Obama. When all three went into office, they had young daughters, all three. You're going to tell me that they didn't sacrifice many a family meal, many a, a, of their daughter's events, activities, uh, story time at bed, bath time, play time. They sacrificed at the highest level for success. 
There is zero success without sacrifice. You will sacrifice something. It may be the damn Game of Thrones Friday through Sunday. But if you want success, you will have to sacrifice. You know, it's funny you keep bringing up Game of Thrones. My, my son is trying to get me to binge watch Game of Thrones. <laughs> and I told him, you know, the exact number of hours it takes to watch all of Game of Thrones. I think, I forget the number. Maybe it was like 120 hours, something like that. It's the exact number of hours it would take me to get a pilot's license. So you can either watch there you go. Thrones or, or fly a plane in the sky by yourself. Think about that. Get, get this one. This one blew me away. I read, and this is just Facebook. This isn't all of social media. I read a piece that the average uh, time spent on Facebook is 53 minutes a day. So let's just round that up and call it an hour. James, if I have an hour a day for 365 days, do you know the shit that I can learn? Do yeah. you know what I can accomplish with 365 hours? But yet and still, people will flow through, look at mindless, pointless right. nothingness. Well, you think about it, that's probably about 19,000 hours in, a life, in 50 years. So 19,000 hours in an, adult, an average adult lifetime. And if you can, let's say you're a writer, you could write 300 words in an hour. So, uh, again, that would be like, uh, it's like six, I don't know. I'm not probably not doing the, the math right, but that would be like 600,000 words. So it's basically you could write 10 great books in the time you spend on Facebook each day. Think about that. And you get nothing from it. And, and again, here, here's my thing. If, if you are spending two hours on TikTok each day, and or, or you're binge watching on the weekend, and you were completely fulfilled and happy in life, God bless you, do your thing. I'm not talking to you. But if you're not happy, and you're at six o'clock on Sunday night, and you're pissed off because you gotta go to this job the next day, and you're not where you wanna be in life, I have zero sympathy for you. You are where you are because you are putting yourself where you are. If you're not changing, you're choosing. Well, Javon, I feel like we only touched the tip of the iceberg of, of modern leader. It was <laughs> such a great book, and I learned so many things about it. I started thinking about myself, like, how am I not presenting myself well, or where do I fall on things like follow through and, and stuff like that? And, and, you know, and then I also started wondering about what, what can I do more to be a leader in these times or have an impact? And I like to think, the podcast does it or my writing does it, but there's always, there's always one more thing you can do. And I started thinking about this and I hope the listeners do as well, but they should read the book, Modern Leader. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast again and sharing your story. Always a pleasure. To, we were talking for six hours before the podcast. I wish you were recording that. And you realize we've got to do a podcast before the day's over. So <laughs> thanks so much for, for coming on the podcast once again. And it's the first one in person I've done since, since COVID began, I think. So Thank you for that as well. Oh, man, I appreciate it. You came in. So, so for everybody listening, uh, James came down to Austin. So we're in Austin, Texas. James came down. I, I Man, I am honored, humbled. This was uh, uh, amazing. Like you said, man, we, we spent six hours before we even started the podcast. But I, I truly appreciate it. Thank you, sir. Thanks, Javon. Mm -hmm.